Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by returning guest, Kalev Kalametz. Kalev is the CEO of Fermi Energia, and we have had quite an exciting week here in Ontario, which I think Kalev is probably quite excited about. Um, Kalev and I met up about a month ago when he was passing through Ontario um, and wanted to bend my ear once again on my personal favorite topic, which is that of the nuclear secret sauce. And so uh, we scheduled this conversation and what a week for it to occur within. Just earlier this week, uh, the Canada Infrastructure Bank announced $1 billion of funding for the West's first small modular reactor um, at the Darlington site right in my backyard in Ontario. Kalev, welcome, uh, welcome to Decouple. I'm excited to, to debrief with you, um, to hear your reactions, and uh, you know, really to, to, to pick your ear again, to challenge some of my cognitive biases. Um, it's always great to have you on. Yeah. Hello, Chris. And uh, hello, everybody. So I hear you're on vacation right now. You were saying a CEO never never really gets a vacation. Uh, thank you for making the time um, on your time off uh, for our listeners. But just catch us up. How have you been doing the last little while? I heard you, you might have got a little bit of frostbite recently. Uh, me? Uh, well, in Estonia, very little. But, uh, but uh, been very busy also for us. And uh, we are also in doing some... Uh, uh, fundraising, not in uh, that volumes as, as uh, our Canadian friends, but uh, but uh, de- definitely also my co- for my company things are are looking up and and the general general principle that I'm about to explain to your listeners I think is is uh, really central uh, about how we how well we have been doing in terms of. Uh, getting customer uh, and also investor um, uh, onboarding. Okay, before we get to the serious stuff, though, I'm serious. I want, I, want, <laughs> I want you to share the frostbite story. I thought it was pretty interesting. And it gives us a sense of kind of the realism um, of your life, how serious it is, how serious you take your commitments um, to your, your, your project. So if you don't mind, <laughs> if I can push you on that, um, yeah. share that story with the listeners. Yeah, I don't feel anything with my... Uh, right foot uh, toe anymore because I was uh, on military exercises uh, in the night. Uh, I'm a member of Estonian National Guard or the Defense League since I'm 14 years old and we had uh, another uh, regular uh, three-week uh, exercises and now we're d- taking on board uh, Ukraine military lessons so to fight uh, the enemy in the night uh, which means that uh, we uh, uh, have very little of sleep and have to accommodate ourselves in the sleeping bags. And I was choosing, choosing a little bit wrong equipment this time, uh, wrong socks, and uh, got really uh, indeed frostbite. And um, yeah, got a very little, uh, like three hours of sleep in the night. And uh, we had to do patrols in the in the night and using night vision goggles and uh, drones. And so we're using taking on board all the lessons from Ukraine. You live an interesting life, my friend. So, yeah, again, we're going to get in, I think, to, I mean, it sounds like from our conversation earlier, you're wanting to share kind of your business model, your vision of how to make um, 
nuclear viable, particularly, you know, your brand of nuclear, uh, small modular reactors, how to get those deployed. Um, I've heard you characterized as a, a bit of a, I don't know, <laughs> bringing up a controversial name, but kind of an Elon Musk of nuclear uh, project management or nuclear financing. Um, that's dropping a, a big controversial name in there. Um, I think everyone's going to be very, very interested in, in hearing uh, your take and, you know, however much of it you're, you're willing and able to share. But again, first off, just to get some of the small talk out of the way, um, your reaction to today's announcement, or sorry, not today's announcement, but the, the announcement uh, earlier this week um, of the Canada Infrastructure Bank making this, this historic investment um, in the BWRX 300 project um, at the Darlington site right here in Ontario, Canada. Yeah, of course, uh, the Canada as a tier one nation and having um, what, what I described also last uh, call we had, like a really cohesive uh, country where uh, in a, the strongest province, the nuclear is very well represented and has a also a cohesive industry, not too like uh, large, but uh, sufficiently large, but at the same time, quite cohesive. Uh, I was able to observe that uh, a month ago at, uh, at a recent conference. And uh, at the same time, it, it is providing clear uh, political and um, uh, industrial benefit in a, in a sense that it does not provide so much in the United States, where nuclear, the benefit of nuclear gets diluted. And as we observe in Illinois, the, even the, the role of nuclear energy is not so well appreciated by the industry had to do a lot of persuading that the politicians would recognize the, the inherent and deep value of nuclear energy in providing uh, price stability. And the price stability is all that I'm going to talk about uh, right now and how relevant it is both in terms of how I'm trying to pursue the business through, uh, through a private angle, but also I think from the angle of, of, of uh, let's say, let's say making from the public perspective, uh, public policy making and public policy aim of having price stability as a guarantor of um, political stability, political success and, and industrial success. So I, I think it's very, very uh, right, uh, suitable announcement, very important, I think, globally. You know, again, we've I've dropped this term on multiple episodes and even just three or four times already this episode, but this this idea of the nuclear secret sauce. In the history of civilian nuclear energy, um, many, many countries have have done an amazing job deploying reactors on budget and on time. And for me, it's almost like a relay race where, you know, really things kicked off in the US where in the 60s, you know, nuclear plants were getting built in four years time on budget, on time, um, competitive with coal. The baton, you know, has been passed. You know, Canada was doing very well in the 70s and 80s. France did extraordinarily well in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Sweden around that time as well. Japan in the 90s. Um, South Korea in the early 2000s. China presently. Um, and for me, it's it's this question of okay, what were the preconditions? What were the, the the factors at play that enabled that? That are so vital to understanding because a nuclear renaissance doesn't come along very often. And when it does, we need to make sure that we take advantage of it and we deploy all the lessons that we possibly can learn from prior successes so that we don't screw it up because it's, it's a, a terrible opportunity to waste. Nuclear is really, really, really difficult to do well, right? And we have lots of examples of it not being done well, particularly in the West in the 21st century. And that has made policymakers quite gun shy um, about venturing into nuclear 
um, for reasons beyond the typical fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which have so gripped the sort of, uh, you know, the, the cultural zeitgeist um, of the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. You know, the, the things I've identified, and I think finance is one of the key things we're going to focus on. But what I, what I focused on just kind of as a brief intro to this concept of the nuclear secret sauce, um, you have, you know, the, the human factors, I think, are what I want to start with because I feel like they're the most neglected. Um, you know, having a workforce that is intimately familiar with nuclear construction, um, with the high levels of certification that go into, you know, nuclear welds or manufacturing nuclear parts, um, that is really vital. Um, you know, alongside those human factors, having the supply chain ramped up, ideally, you know, um, ramped up specific to the design and wants to employ. So, I mean, those are kind of two features, human factors, supply chain design is, is clearly important, right? I think design has probably been overemphasized at the expense of those other features. Um, but you know, and, and a design with a good operational history, um, is, is essential. Um, government support is key, you know, in South Korea, um, a anti-nuclear president came in and essentially wrecked one of the world's premier, um, nuclear, uh, nuclear, nuclear countries. Um, and so what's, what I'm finding really fascinating about living where I am right now is that these ingredients of the nuclear secret sauce are all lining up remarkably well, um, in Ontario, especially with the announcement of the life extension and probable refurbishment of the Pickering nuclear station, we, I think have the most pro-nuclear uh, government in the West, in the West, right? Yep. F on the federal level, you know, we weren't sure. Well, we were sure that, that they weren't very pro-nuclear because they, they listed nuclear alongside uh, tobacco gambling, firearms in their green bond framework. But now the federal government has joined the provincial government in this historic announcement and has ponied up a billion dollars, you know, which is a lot of money. I keep comparing it to the amount of money we spend every year in subsidies for our wind and solar contracts here in Ontario, which is $3.1 billion per year. But it is a significant chunk of change and something I think a lot of folks in the industry had sort of given up on, this idea that the state would come forward with a significant amount of funding. That's a real game changer. Obviously, because of our can-do refurbishments, we have a supply chain and human factors that are completely lined up. Um, I'm thinking we're ready to cook something pretty amazing here in Ontario. Um, you know, obviously, we've had this gift of, you know, advocacy that has, I think, really helped to deliver the political pressure that has led to this federal announcement. This federal government has been incredibly reluctant and let's face it, quite anti-nuclear um, in, in a lot of their policies, at best kind of schizophrenic or contradictory. Um, but your, your thoughts on this nuclear secret sauce and particularly um, the private financing route um, are, again, um, kind of in conflict or contradictory to some of my sort of political biases. But again, I do really try and pride myself on uh, engaging in a bit of cognitive dissonance. And for that, you know, I'm very grateful to have you as a friend and looking forward to you uh, expanding on this idea of the, uh, the nuclear secret sauce and particularly, I guess, your ideas about finance. But feel free to take it any direction you like, my friend. Yeah, since we, we spoke, I, I've given a lot of talk about um, and uh, about uh, your your let's say corner of the of the aisle so to say or, or how you look at it that there should be a, a national policy making and based on national policy making there's a push for this wonderful energy source that is called nuclear energy and obviously there is a definitely um, even with the government uh, or let's say private initiative as we have it in Estonia there is major role for the for the for the government in 
any case for in in the picture of nuclear energy. But I, what what I would talk about is uh, come back to what is relevant both that route that you described uh, and envisage kind of uh, the new major policy-driven push for new nuclear, or the, uh, let's say what I uh, am proposing and and uh, executing in Estonia, uh, providing uh, private capital access. The key, I think, in both cases uh, in the decarbonization story is price stability, because uh, what I'm going to dis describe to you is, 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 is what is the situation that we are having, not only in Europe, but you're going to experience the same uh, in, let's say, your continent, American continent, very much uh, in, the, in the coming years. And uh, to some, of the, some of the impacts uh, in the gas pricing, oil pricing, you are experiencing it already now. So the reality is that... Um, <clears throat> Uh, in 2022, the likely uh, capex going to oil and gas compared to 2019 is, is declining. It's declining substantially. And if you, in the fossil business, it's very simple. If you're putting less money in, you're getting less of oil out. <laughs> it's very, no. very simple. And and if we are going to decarbonize and, and uh, decarbonizing the investments, even if we would get the same uh, BTU value out of the non-fossil technologies, and we're definitely not, we're definitely not. And there are, the lead times are, are substantial. When, unfortunately, with the, renew, uh, with the renewables, we're definitely not getting the same oil equivalent energy, primary energy out of the system for the same billion dollars that we are investing. And with the nuclear, unfortunate story is that lead times are, are substantial. So what we fundamentally are going to have in, if you are going to disinvest essentially fossil fuels, is that the prices are going to be volatile. And the prices for electricity, and we need to electrify for decarbonization, prices for electricity, even in regulated markets, when we are going to have uh, higher penetration of renewables, the prices are going to be volatile. It's fundamentally the nature of renewables because they are intermittent. And you need to back them up with yeah, dispatchable capacities, dispatchable uh, yeah, uh, either natural gas or nuclear. And uh, the unfortunate reality is that Renewable guys, they are obviously fearing nuclear and they're pushing for for uh, gas. And that, that's what the, the, the real replacement of coal has been in Americas, in UK, uh, even in Australia, even uh, in China. So uh, this means that the, if the gas consumption is going to increase uh, globally or even to stay level and the, the coal is going to drop, and the oil is going to drop uh, to send some uh, the production. Then the, the because the gas is somewhat interlinked with, in terms of corporate and in terms of resource itself as well. Then uh, I don't think it's it's very easy to maintain uh, production rates, and therefore you will have less volume 
at the market and at the same time um, demand being robust and uh, and this is going to take take place over coming decades and which means fundamentally uh, it's going to be unstable and uh, the, what is what we see in Europe as well on stability in terms of co2 pricing so you have with uh, so even in in, uh, in regulated market circumstances you objectively is are going to have volatile prices in unregulated markets like we have in europe north pool uh, there are yes there is uh, the amount of the volume unpredictability then the price unpredictability of the backup but then you have also the unpredictability of whether you will have dispatchables at all uh, supplying to for you to be able to provide to customers final electricity customers uh, firm price long-term contracts that you're able to provide physical delivery of ele electricity at certain price and here i see very strong sweet spot for for nuclear to provide those long-term fixed 15 years fixed price uh, contracts at a price much lower much lower than renewable plus gas could potentially ever provide hmm. and hmm. so this this is i i, I think the secret source and i would go a little bit into the details what i see are the reasons really why the volatility is going to be this decade and next decade uh, very very substantial so to to sum it up i mean is your your version of the finance part of the secret sauce uh, power purchase agreements um, is is that too simplistic no it's not too simplistic it's absolutely it. Uh, so we expect uh, more than 60% for sure of our smr power generation for next 15 years to be covered with fixed price ppas and which enables us at all uh, to have financeable project, have clear offtake, reduction of market risk, uh, but also um, and providing to let's say banks certainty that they would have their debts paid back, whatever mm -hmm. the market does. And uh, but at the same time, what it very importantly does very important it provides already be before the construction clear political signal to decision makers in the society at large but uh, the political class specifically that the industry is interested in that project it is providing national public good mm -hmm. so it's unrefutable irrefutable and we have in estonia more than 500 gigawatt hours of uh, power generation of our first unit already covered with those MOUs for PPAs. And so that, that is a very important tool. So when we were, when we were talking in Toronto um, about recording this episode, the model that you brought up, and this isn't the carbon copy of what you're doing, but you talked uh, about Finland. And Finland is an extraordinary country. Um, it has a green party that is pro-nuclear energy, um, the only one in the world, uh, as far as I understand right now. Um, it's got a pretty thriving eco-modernist community. 
Um, it's a very well-educated country. I mean, uh, maybe I'm fetishizing it a little too much. You get a little cardboard box with all your baby stuff when you leave the hospital. It's, it's, there's a bunch of famous things that come out of Finland. You need a master's degree in education and pedagogy to teach kindergarten, for God's sakes, in that country. Still a lot of trust in their, in their social institutions and things like that. Um, but you were, you know, the, the durability of support for nuclear energy in Finland, even with the Chernobyl accident, um, you mentioned uh, an underlying reason behind that. And I think that was how they have financed their nuclear projects to date in alongside all of these other reasons of being a, a society that's highly educated and trusts, you know, in its, in its institutions and in its experts. Um, walk us through that model, what it's called and, and whether or not, I guess you're kind of building off that or inspired by that. Yeah, it's called after village of Mankala uh, in in uh, Finland, where one hydro plant was was built together by two uh, uh, wood pulp companies that absolutely hate each other and are competing uh, tooth and nail uh, for against each other, uh, uh, like Quebec and Ontario uh, uh, hockey teams. Uh, but in hydro and energy, they're cooperating. And the Mankala is essentially mutuality, where they are both shareholders, but together with them are uh, 14 other major industries in Finland, uh, and uh, then municipalities, uh, which are uh, owning the district uh, distribution network in their municipalities, like municipality of Lahti, uh, Vanta, and so forth. So, uh, so the, if the power is produced, it is distributed at cost to the shareholders of the of the company the company that is owner of the Olkiluoto plant they are not making any profit zero ever really? ever yeah all the profit is going to is being made by the shareholders but the challenge is that the shareholders have to be up making upfront uh, substantial investment uh, into the power generation sources and the challenge for us uh, in, in Estonia is we, we can't do Mankala. We don't have companies that are founded in 1654 or something like that. So uh, right. <laughs> uh, while we have some big companies and uh, even owned by Estonian domestic capital, not that much. That, that is not sufficient. But the, the, to overcome that challenge is that um, you have the PPAs. And with the, essentially with the PPAs, you have almost the same certainty of offtake and de-risking of the political pro, uh, poli political de-risking of the project and certainly what what is relevant with the Mankala model is that because the society and the and the shareholders receive the power at cost then the benefit of the nuclear power is specific not general not diluted right. in the, into the grid but it is specific to those shareholders those municipalities, those companies that are making the profit. And so this means that they are interested. It is their vested interest, not one company, right. but many to defend it, to understand it, explain it, and to defend mm. it. And right. this is the way. This is the way we are aiming also in Estonia. Not only that we would have, a, in, a, in my company, we have already... 1200 shareholders and I want to be there to be maybe 60,000. So representing maybe about six, 7% of the population. It's wow. not so bad. Then, uh, but essentially I want uh, essentially majority of Estonian industrial companies having PPA with the nuclear power plant 
receiving benefit of the low cost, reliable price electricity, low carbon that nuclear is going to provide for next 60, 100, 200 years. And then they are going to defend it. And we overcome the major problem of nuclear energy, which we have seen in Europe, in Belgium, Sweden, Spain, and Germany, of, of total stupidity of phasing out nuclear while providing huge benefit to the society. And also the reality that uh, nobody loves a big company, especially yeah. that if they are so badly run uh, like EDF or, or uh, what have you then they don't, the utilities are universally not very much loved. And if they are owned, right. the nuclear power plants are owned by this big municipality, uh, which is also very poor at communication, then the social trust is being lost. The benefit sharing is not equal in the society. And the public does not support nuclear. And this is in long term is the, the biggest problem of nuclear. Not that even even understanding how it works or not even the... Uh, not even the, uh, what's uh, say, the safety issue or so. But I think that the benefit sharing is very important in the society, more yeah. important yeah. than people publicly want to speak about. Right. No, I think that's fascinating. And, you know, I, I haven't done a detailed survey of nuclear power plant ownership around the world, but, you know, the availability bias I have is that, um, you know, Bruce Power, um, which is publicly owned but privately operated, that private operator um, is made up um, not quite the majority, but about forty percent of that is a municipal workers' pension fund. Um, the unions um, who operate the plant, I believe, have a four percent ownership stake um, in the in the plant. So we have a little bit of that um, here um, with our private public partnership. Of course, the other plants are owned by you know a company whose sole shareholder is the the province of Ontario. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you told me about that that model from Finland, I was I was really fascinated by it because, as you're mentioning, I think there were the large players. Um, I think even in Oikoloto have been um, some industrial companies, but it also extends to municipalities and and other um, other entities that aren't necessarily just kind of you know what some on the left might think of as just like big bad companies. Like when I tell people who are on the left and critical of nuclear energy that hey, you know, all our assets are publicly owned. And the one that's privately operated is almost majority owned by pension funds and unions. Um, it does give them pause. It does give them pause. So I think I think this is a this is a very uh, interesting uh, ingredient in our in our secret sauce that we're cooking up today. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it's it's uh, I I think that uh, what what is really bad in Europe is like uh, the the multi energy utilities. Uh, like like Henri, where nuclear is really just making money, how they call it, and uh, right. not treated very well, uh, and it it dilutes. I mean, if you're just putting nuclear to the grid, it dilutes. It you don't see the benefit. Uh, mm -hmm. So the benefit has to be specific for that to be felt. Right. Right. Appreciated. Mark Nelson, I think, used a great analogy of the giving tree when talking about uh, French nuclear and how it's it's really been used to, um, you know, give so much to society, but but nothing has been sort of given back. And they've been ch chopping branch after branch after branch off of this highly productive apple tree, shall we say, until there's nothing but a stump left. 
Um, and hopefully they're able to get that fleet back online um, in time for this winter. But, you know, in Sweden as well, I understand there's a, a pretty high tax on nuclear just for being nuclear. Um, it's made uncompetitive. So, I mean, we're constantly told that wind and solar are cheaper, are cheaper. Um, I, I do want to dig a little bit more um, into, you know, that that is a factor um, and, a, and a creation of deregulated markets that um, reward uh, certain electricity production differently. And so, you know, how much of a departure is is a power purchase agreement um, strategy from from the sort of deregulated markets that have become the norm? I think through through much of Europe, uh, through uh, much of the U.S. and in some parts of Canada. Actually, the PPAs are um, a tool that was developed to to finance renewables. I'm just taking mm. uh, taking the playbook from them. And instead of having like uh, normally for a solar park or wind park, you would have like two, three PPAs. And then the banks would be very, very careful. What is the counterparty risk with this PPA? Uh, Whether the counterparty of this risk uh, of this uh, PPA uh, is really credible, able to take a 10-year contract, seven-year contract, and actually pay for the volume that it has contracted. And so what uh, the, the renewable companies always love is like uh, having Amazon and, and, uh, and uh, Microsoft and uh, Google and companies like that uh, with their balance sheet behind the, behind the PPA. But how I'm thinking about it is having a, like essentially your whole national industry involved in the PPA structure, not, not tens, not hundreds, but thousands of PPAs. So then essentially you have the national economy risk, not um, not the individual company risk. Obvious, mm-hmm. Still have certain risks, but um, well, it's, it's as good as it gets. And what is important also in the context of uh, current energy crisis that we have in Europe, look, the, the crisis we have is so severe that uh, not only in this year, but next year as well, and the year after that, that this is a problem for the banks. If your national industries are going to decline, if your national industries are going to bankruptcy, this is a huge bloody problem for banks holding the debt of those companies mm. because they're not going to see their money and they're not going to see a lot of money. So this makes banks rather interested in well, what is the solution here? <laughs> right, so right. there is a good match, I think, of providing nuclear energy, price stability, and what uh, what banks would like to have is to that the survival of national industry and the economy as such. <laughs> Listen, I mean, we check in pretty frequently uh, with uh, some of our German friends and guests, such as Noah Redberg, um, yeah, on on the state. Of yeah, on the state of affairs there, and on the sort of deindustrialization that's that's occurring, but it's it's too it's happening too fast to to keep up with. To be honest, um, I mean, can you give us a little update on on your your take on what's going on in terms of the deindustrialization of Europe? I think what you just said there is is so vitally important that the banks now have a huge interest because they've got a bunch of debt caught up in these industrial companies which are going under because energy is so expensive and unreliable yeah. or just frankly unavailable. Um, so maybe catch us up a little bit there to to flesh out that argument for us. For those of us lucky enough to not be, you know, in a in a in a in a society of of just cratering industry. Yeah. So so the prices of gas in Europe have really dropped uh, thanks to weather <laughs> that yeah. we really have in in uh, Central Europe. It's still twenty twenty degree, degrees plus uh, while we are in October. 
So global right. warming is absolutely happening. Uh, it's which you. is uh, well, yeah. Um, uh, so, but uh, the big news of today is the largest chemical company on 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 the planet. I think BAS BASF uh, BASF yeah. uh, announced that they are going to reduce uh, industry their company footprint in Germany on a permanent basis. So this is a quite quite a major announcement. And uh, the next year's next year's gas price, uh, there is yeah there have been significant reduction in spot prices. But the next year gas price, uh, so Cal twenty three, is one hundred thirty euros per megawatt hour. So that is uh, <laughs> that is still six times higher than it was was uh, a year. Well. Not a year ago. A year ago, it was already up. The Putin starts uh, started to decrease uh, pipeline capacity right. supplies already in uh, early August. So he was preparing for this war quite uh, early. So and uh, now, now the, but the reality is that uh, this war is going to last quite long, potentially maybe into the second half of next year. Then, uh, <clears throat> then. Uh, it is very un unlikely that the Russian gas supplies would return in any number, and Europe itself is uh, uh, is wants to shut down all uh, gas imports from from Russia, and Russia itself is doing uh, blowing up its pipelines. So I, I think the, uh, the we we need a lot of more LNG, which puts a lot of purchasing pressure. On the on the global LNG markets, where is the LNG coming com from? It's coming from America, and so mm -hmm. it depends a little bit on all the weather in Asia and and Europe. What is going to be the uh, price mixture? But essentially, what I'm hearing very much is the volatility is going to be there for long term. And what banks don't like, what businesses don't like, is volatility. And nuclear is not volatile. If you're not in mm -hmm. France, <laughs> then. And, and if you have well-maintained plants like in Finland and right. Sweden, Sweden, but elsewhere in Europe, then you're reliably generating all the time power. And, and right. this is what is so valuable to businesses to have price stability. And that is the reason why Finnish companies have invested into the, even despite the Olkiluoto going 15 years over time, have continuously invested into the Olkiluoto. So there's obviously a, a global nuclear renaissance um, emerging here, and and I, I try not to abuse that term. Definitely, renaissance has has been thrown around probably more often than it should have, and you know renaissances can always be aborted. Um, I'm curious again. You're you're operating out of a country with no existing nuclear program. Um, the challenge is there. I mean, I've talked about um, I guess a bit globally about how, and I think in Ontario, we're we're finally have assembled all the ingredients and we're kind of ready for a breakout. I think the limitation in Ontario is really going to be the, on the human factor side. We have an incredibly skilled workforce, but just how much can we ramp it up? I mean, there's nowhere in the world, maybe probably not even China, that can, can do anything similar to the French Mesmer plan. And, and a big part of that is just demography. There's not enough people who have the skills and the skilled trades that are able to work on these, on these projects. You know, I hope we can refurbish the Pickering Nuclear Station, carry out the other refurbishments at Darlington and Bruce build this SMR um, at Darlington, maybe build some more enhanced can-do sixes, help Romania finish reactors over there, assist you know, Estonia with building its uh, first reactors. I mean, that's a tall order. There's, there's a lot that could happen 
And I, when I look at that secret sauce, um, obviously finance is more constrained. I just I gave a, a, a talk to a Hong Kong business group yesterday morning, and I was quoting um, the uh, Gehring and Rosenzweig report where they were saying between 2010 and 2020, um, the world experienced the cheapest capital um, that it had seen really in 4,000 years. And all sources of primary energy had dropped from peak to trough by 90%. We had an easy decade these last 10 years. You know, no doubt things are, are trickier on, on a number of levels, you know, from the perspective just of energy, it requires energy to, to build all these big projects. It requires capital. Capital is getting more expensive. Interest rates are going up. But my, my real take is that human factors will be the limitation to a truly ambitious build out. Um, and that's what's going to restrain the velocity. But tell me, as someone planning very seriously on deploying nuclear very quickly and very soon, what you see as some of the constraints to to actually putting shovels in the ground and getting this these plants built you know what do you want to see built in estonia have you guys selected a design how many um you, it looks like you're well on the way in terms of these power purchase agreements just update us on where you're at and and what your what sort of your, your some of your timelines and targets are so our timeline uh, that we have uh, officially also announced is to to have power uh, generation by christmas of 2031 that is what mm-hmm. Estonian customers need, what, what our, our customers or investors need. Absolutely, our society needs it. Um, so we, we have submitted um, a request for proposals to three uh, light water uh, SMR vendors. Uh, we're going to make our choice uh, public on 8th of February uh, in 2023. And uh, with that, we go to the project development agreement of uh, front-end engineering and um, and uh, planning. Uh, so, yes, you're right, Chris. Actually, human resource is the longest lead item. It's not the RPVs. Um, mm. they, we have many facilities in Europe that, and, and, and also in, in globally that can be ramped up to pr- manufacture RPVs, generators, turbines. This is, I don't think this is really so much of a problem, the manufacturing cap- capa- capacity. There can be additional hundreds of millions or billions of investments going into those facilities to upskill new welders, this is possible. But what I do think really and very seriously uh, is the limitation is to uh, have volume of projects and projects actually staffed, organized, in quality required by recover, quality reco- required by nuclear management systems, quality required by nuclear regulation for a very good reason. To maintain high nuclear safety, high investor and public confidence on a permanent basis. We cannot have either failure in preparation of the projects execution of the projects, construction process, we can't have any failures in the operation as well. There is zero tolerance. Any failure anywhere is a problem for the whole industry. So we have to be very, very rigorous in the quality of the execution. And it takes a lot of work. It requires high quality of staff. It requires master thesis, master thesis guys, PhD people, gals and boys, uh, and in the volumes that we have not executed from the from the universities in that volume uh, last decades, we and yeah. this you're you're absolutely right. This is the long lead item. 
and we have to ramp investment into the educational system. I, I could uh, explain how we done it in Estonia, going coming from zero, but it may, might make may take some time. But you're absolutely right. We have to get the volume of people mm -hmm. and, and quality to the system to have like really 30 gigawatt, 40 gigawatt of deployments going globally, either large or small, doesn't make a difference, but we have right. to get the gigawatts out there. I think what you said there is so important. Like there, there can be no tolerance for failures in this renaissance, in the preparation, in the construction, obviously in the operation. Um, and that's why... I'm often quite puzzled by the lack of serious debate that occurs in how we plan this out. You know, um, there, there's obviously a lot of different proposals before us, a lot of different designs, a lot of different scales and sizes. Um, and I do find that there's this culture of suppression of debate and, you know, the same kind of all of the aboveism that we see uh, when talking about so-called clean energy in general, you know, well, what, we can just do it all guys. You know, we got to yeah, build yeah. so much. We've got to double, triple our grid. Let them build the wind, let them build the solar, let them build the micro hydro, let them build yeah. the unicorn, unicorn fart um, yeah. collectors. It doesn't matter. It does. It does. You know, we have goals. Absolutely. We have limited timelines, limited resources. You know, there's climate implications. There's also these geopolitical and geosecurity implications, which in some ways are much more urgent, particularly yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, again, that's why I like having you on. I think the audience broadly understands some of my biases. Um, you know, and, and I do take pride with what's happened here in Canada, because a lot of folks, I think, have said, you know, government's never going to fund nuclear again. We've got one of the reasons we need to go the SMR route is because it's going to be private investors. And it was as a result, in part of the advocacy that myself and my organization have done, that we started to make it possible again to even imagine that government and particularly a truly anti-nuclear government would have an about face like this and put a billion dollars forward. You know, and so I, I do want to have these debates. And, you know, I think I'm known and maybe sometimes pigeonholed as having strong opinions. I do want to emphasize that I'm open to having them challenged. And that's why I maintain, you know, very fruitful friendships with people like yourself who challenged, again, some of my cognitive biases. You know, on, on that subject of, you know, what, what scale do we choose? I do want to go there in a bit more detail. Um, but on this, on this human factors train, I do think we need to dwell on this a little bit more. You know, we did have an episode with Francois Perchet who was a French EDF engineer around in the 70s and 80s during the deployment of the Mesmer plan. It was a fascinating conversation. Again, what were the preconditions? And, you know, when you look at the 1950s, I mean, in the same way that coding is all the rage nowadays and all the kids want to go into coding, nuclear was it in the 50s. You know, and it truly is a, an absolute miracle that we went, you know, from, um, you know, again, all of our other sources of energy basically being fusion, shall we say, coming from the sun, either, you know, short term storage of the sun and in, in firewood or long term in fossil fuels and these other sources um, to harnessing the strong atomic force. That was, I think, incredibly inspiring to young people who wanted to change the world. Um, and it drew the brightest minds into nuclear engineering. And we had a plethora of experiments and designs and a more regulatory, permissive regulatory environment that allowed, you know, real experimentation to occur. I mean, we have to face it. We're in frankly different times. And I think what you said in terms of these long lead times on the human factors are just essential um, for us as advocates to be bringing to the forefront and attention of our governments. I had a meeting with the Minister of uh, Ministry of Labor actually just earlier this week, and they were talking about, you know, what kind of immigration should we be prioritizing? 
um, you know, into into Canada. And I mean, we are in the enviable position of being a wealthy country that attracts immigration. I do fear that we're stealing, you know, a very limited resource in developing countries who need their own skilled tradespeople. But absolutely, that's that's part of what is needed. Um, so, you know, rant, I guess, a little bit over there, but I do want to just kind of emphasize that. But let's let's pivot back to, again, scale. I mean, clearly, Estonia is a country of, I think, just over a million um, I, forgive me if I'm screwing up your geography again, but um, it, it is interesting to me that Poland is making an announcement. You know, when I talked to Adam Blazowski, he was like, listen, I mean, the government is pursuing large nuclear projects um, in terms of the tenders coming from the Minister of Energy. Um, you know, private entities are welcome to to pursue small, you know, smaller designs. Um, tell me a little bit more again, your thoughts specific to scale. Um, and then I will tell you a bit more about my reactions to the Darlington announcement here, here as a Canadian. Yeah, I, I believe that we, we in Estonia, we are aiming for 1,200. And uh, I think we can execute. Uh, we, we have scheduled uh, the, the deployments. And I, I think we can execute both um, human resource and, and, uh, and the capital in a manner for the SMR deployment that we would have uh, potentially in four years after the first one is, is uh, actually started power generation had the... Uh, 1200 uh, deployed so i do think also smrs can be deployed quickly so uh so you, you it's it's um it's uh it's a reality that in aircraft industry where the aircraft design is ready then the scaling happens uh in a, in a good conditions happens quite quickly that you are delivering mm -hmm. uh, hundreds of airplanes a year um so if the uh, so i i think that uh, it is but I don't think it's going to happen for 10 designs. It's going to happen maybe for five designs. So I, I don't think that uh, more than three advanced reactor designs are going to be actually executed, uh, given, the, given the challenges that they do really uh, realistically have, and given the market sizes that they realistically are in OECD countries. So, uh, but the, the, I, I think that the biggest challenge is having multitude of projects actually maturing to the stage where um, when the site is determined, site studies are, are performed uh, and the licensing is, is performed and the, the, the really the uh, placing the preliminary order for the long lead items can be done and then the financial investment decision, final investment decision can be done. So I, I think the biggest bottleneck is having maturity of the projects and the quality of the projects um, to, to that stage. Uh, but... Uh, uh, and, and the key there for, for the, all of those projects, I, I think, is the, the value that they, they bring to actually to the customers uh, specifically through the, with the price stability. And um, yeah, sorry, I, I went again to the price element. I, I would, if, you, if you would mind, then I would touch why in this decade we really will have this substantial price volatility that we, we have experienced last uh, 12 months in Europe for sure, but we are going to experience for next 12 years. And, and that is going to, I think, convince a lot of public that, oh, this renewable story was great, hydrogen story is great, but the prices are horrible. <laughs> right, right. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to so, hear. So uh, what, we, what we have, uh, uh, what I mentioned also to you uh, on the last podcast is we have 75 gigawatts of uh, coal capacity in Europe that is aging 
and where political phase-out decisions have been made, Ireland, Denmark, uh, Germany, of course, Czech Republic, Romania, er everybody. Uh, but also the aging, physical aging, and also running, the mines running out. And it's absolutely zero possibility to make any new, take any debt to reinvigorate, uh, invest into new mines in Europe, zero possibility. And mm. also for coal internationally, it's very hard to get any money from Western banks, maybe Chinese some, uh, but uh, from Western banks, forget it. But, but this, the same challenge is with gas and oil. So Equinor, the uh, European largest oil and gas company, they have committed, but that in eight years, in eight years, 50% of their capex is going to go non-fossil. What does it mean? It means that less money is going to get, get go to gas and oil, which means inevitably that the production is going to decline, which inevitably means that you have le less volume to produce to the market, which means that the prices are going to be either just very, very high or volatile, uh, let's say at best, if, if, if the consumption is going to decline. But I don't see the consumption actually going to decline because they need to replace the coal, uh, the coal. What we are going to also have is a renewable aging. So a lot of the fleet was done in the... Uh, the 2000, uh, 2000 to 2010. And so next decade, in the 20s, a lot of this fleet is going to start to age. And uh, we, yeah. we need to replace that or reinstall it. And, and the reality of wind installments is that uh, to reach European 40% renewables, we should be installing 32 gigawatts of wind. The reality of 2021 was 17, exactly half of that goal. So we're definitely not going to achieve that. That's absolutely no. certain. So the last wind uh, blade manufacturing plant in Germany was closed this June. So how, and the Germans are going to say they're quadrupling the, the wind installments. It's all lies. It's like the, the Canada, uh, Canada and the Germany renew uh, this uh, renewable hydrogen. hydrogen. It's a total yeah. lie. Um, yeah. So, uh, and uh, on top of it, uh, no one in the West, uh, and we see that uh, with the LNG, that Americans are saying, and the Qataris are saying, we are going to increase LNG production uh, or terminals, but we want 20-year contracts. We want certainty that, yes, you're going to be our customers, not in 10 years, not in five years, but for 20 years, because we have a... Mass, you are essentially asking us to make 10 billion investments into additional energy facilities. But, uh, but of course, the Germans are not signing up to that. Right, and so right. if you don't have that situation, then the actual investment into new LNG capacities is not going to increase in the scale that is necessary to replace all Russian gas. And then right. on top of that, we have the geopolitical situation, um, or let's say rather a situation where autocrats are getting um, are still very bullish. So the Russia, Iran, Venezuela, uh, they the China now uh, there is totally one man state, and of course they are uh, they're in in their view absolute existential fight with America, with the West, with democracy. They they feel that the, the democracy is a <laughs> and it is existential danger to those autocrats. They have the fossil fuels, they have the raw materials. And so you understand 
there is a bit of a problem. We being the customers for solar or the rare, rare earth metals or any metals coming from China. If we're going to decouple from China, we will have meaningful reductions of Chinese metal supplies or solar PVs or the permanent magnets from People's Republic of China uh, that is hell-bent on, how to say, um, having full sovereignty over uh, what they call the island of Taiwan, uh, which is their province, uh, in coming five years, which is the next term of the Xi Jinping, then uh, there's going to be uh, price volatility. And, and at the same time, we are going to have high interest rates, which are a bit of a problematic for high capital good uh, investments, which is essentially all energy investment. So this means that the price volatility of this decade will be very substantial. And when, when, when you want to escape that volatility, there's not too many places to go, especially in, if you want to go decarbonized. So you go nuclear. So hello. That was a that was a very uh, expansive overview of, of geopolitics. I've been you know reading uh, Peter Zihan's book, um, "The End of the World Is Just the Beginning." Um, a little bit hyperbolic, I think, in terms of some of its predictions of the U.S. backing off on its kind of global naval hegemony. Um, but nonetheless, very interesting uh, take. Well, Caleb, that was uh, that was quite a summary of I think a lot of uh, geopolitical and economic tendencies. Um, I've been reading Peter Zihan, uh, "The End of the World Is Just the Beginning," um, his thesis around the incipient uh, deglobalization occurring around the world, which is a little bit hyperbolic, I think, uh, particularly with his predictions of the end of U.S. naval hegemony. Um, but nonetheless, uh, quite interesting, and and particularly you know some of his uh, uh, thinking on demographics, I think, is probably influenced both of us in terms of our concerns about uh, human factors being a key rate limiting step for this nuclear renaissance. Um, I did, while I still have you here in our closing few minutes, want to sort of, I guess, ask you to to critique um, or, or see what your thoughts are on 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 my thoughts on this announcement um, uh, of the Darlington uh, the Darlington project. So again, I mean, thrilled. Uh, my my theory of change has has been that we need to um, advocate that we need to be very active in politics and we need to convince government of the need to to make these kind of um, imp- uh, significant uh, financing and it, it, God I'm stuttering here financing arrangements as a part of this nuclear secret sauce. What is interesting is um, you know there is a plan I believe to build um, not just one but probably three more of these uh, BWX 300s at the Darlington site. And this is the only licensed site in North America with an approved environmental assessment that's ready to build on. In Canada, we have a federal environmental impact assessment policy, which means that even if, say, Bruce Power wanted to build new reactors on an existing nuclear site that is extraordinarily well monitored from an environmental perspective, they'd have to go through something like a seven to nine year environmental impact assessment process. So how the, 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 the preciousness of the Darlington site um, for us to move forward quickly on our electrification goals, on simply having enough juice on the grid, on you know our higher order uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, things like climate change um, is is abundant, um, but we only have one place we can do that, and it is licensed for 4,800 megawatts, um, and it seems like the path dependency is towards building 1,200 megawatts of the X300. Now, 
We are a tier one nuclear nation. There's significant interest from around the world in small modular reactors. We have smaller grids in Canada, which you know cannot accommodate our larger can-do reactors. Um, I'm all in favor of us exploring this technology, but given the 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 the, the, the facts I've mentioned, um, you know, personally, I, I am worried. Um, I'm also a little bit, obviously, of a a, a proud Canadian. Um, I'm you know proud of our of our of our technology. I mean, we're one of the few countries in the world that produced its own indigenous reactor design, fuel, et cetera, um, that has survived and even thrived in the modern world. Very few countries can say that. Um, and it does feel like there's an element of a poisonous kiss towards our existing technology, the can-do, almost a techno-suicide, which I think is someone who's also you know, nationalistic and proud of your country. I guess I'm, I'm asking whether or not you can feel this kind of empathetic pull that I'm feeling, where I feel like we may be on the verge of losing not just you know our reactor design the can do um, but also i mean the entire supply chain um, the entire nuclear industry is a can do nuclear industry and so it's you know i'm certainly hopeful that we'll be able to bring a lot of the um, ge hitachi supply chain into canada but certainly at present the fuel certainly isn't manufactured here um, and none of the the components are so you know, this was a, an announcement that, uh, you know, got mixed reviews from me. I was both thrilled to see our advocacy um, really paying dividends, literally. Um, but also, you know, I do have concerns and I, I, I do hope that there is enough room um, for a, not to say all of the above, but, you know, all of the best approach um, and that Canada has room um, in terms of, you know, having those nuclear secret sauce ingredients assembled and enough human resources critically to pursue both new SMRs and new, say, enhanced can do sixes, but that's kind of a tension that I'm feeling. So again, I'm I'm wondering, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on the thesis that I'm advancing here. Look, uh, uh, there is no technological miracle to to nuclear or or any other business. Let's say uh, in in aircraft or car business, it, it's not good enough to have a wonderful design. But the specific design needs to be driven by a very good team. If the team is not executing the sales or, or uh, the, to say, project delivery in a manner that provides confidence to the customers, it is not successful. So uh, yeah, I, I, I can't, I mean, there are so many more ingredients than just, you know, uh, uh, having a good design. But uh, I, I definitely think uh, Kondo is a good design. So before uh, 2010, uh, when I was involved in the Estonian NGO promoting nuclear, I was very much in favor of Estonia deploying new Kandos. I was visiting uh, uh, your, your company, that uh, uh, ASCL, uh, of learning about Kandos and whether Kandos are exportable because they were the only mid-range, like 1600 megawatt range that potentially would be, have been suitable for Estonia. And uh, clearly, Romania, Argentina, uh, uh, many countries have deployed candles. So you could potentially export candle technology. And, and it is um, more proliferation safe than, than uh, many other designs because there is indeed no enrichment. So therefore, there, there has been many benefits uh, where, where controls can be uh, had. And uh, could it be also more candles deployed? It's, it's been proven to be very, very safe design. But uh, at the same time, uh, I would not neglect that, uh, that uh, even the SMRs, uh, let's say two, three designs, could provide 
many gigawatts to Canada. And also in, in uh, certainly in Ontario too. Ontario is a 16 million population and uh, about the same, uh, let's say, larger than Sweden. But Sweden has uh, had four nuclear power plants where they had more than uh, close to 10 uh, gigawatts uh, of capacity installed. So uh, I think uh, you could have a, a new site, many new sites in Ontario to decarbonize your transportation. Uh, last time I was there, I saw very few electric cars uh, compared to what is, is present in Europe. Uh, you definitely need to decarbonize uh, a lot of uh, the industry as well. Uh, all the fertilizer business in Saskatchewan, uh, all the ammonia needs to decarbonize. And this is absolutely real. Uh, the reality that we have in October, 20 degrees in, in Berlin, this is not normal. <laughs> so yeah. the, the climate change news will be horrible. Uh, this decade, even worse next year, worse year, a decade after that. So it's, it's really massive problem that we are destroying our planet because we are not going to get it back. And uh, so it's very, very unfortunate. So I, I, I'm, I'm all by all means supportive of large nuclear, even supportive of renewable, if it could be executed well without subsidies. But uh, it's, it's unfortunate that the reality is it's providing so much price volatility that the volatility itself is a huge social problem and, mm. and uh, a huge problem for families, uh, this price volatility and people that are not understanding uh, that, uh, and there is so, too much talk about, uh, oh yeah, we are going to do uh, kind of load shedding and we're going to do uh, uh, following when there were lower prices and stuff. This is total nonsense. It's, um, so there is a lot of work to be done in the intellectual front, but also in the project execution front. So I, by all means, I, I applaud your defense of counter technology. All right. Well, so much more I'd like to talk to you about. Uh, and we'll have to have you back soon, Caleb. Um But good luck uh, with everything um, that you're involved with. Uh, I, I'm very interested in following your project along. Um, I do think it's very innovative. And thank you for sharing with me and with the audience um, everything that you've learned, because, you know, every time I talk to you, you're, you're nonstop. I see your mind just clicking away, um, constantly innovating and thinking through new ideas. Um, so thanks for sharing some of those with us today here on decouple. Yeah, you're welcome. And, uh, and everybody let's do more nuclear. Amen. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.